Thank you, sir. Good morning, y'all. How are you? Good, good. We're almost done with Matthew, right? Well, this, I think this is the last piece of Matthew 27, then Matthew 28 in the coming weeks, and then I don't know if the mystery has been revealed to you. Hasn't been revealed to me. I don't know what's next. But anyway, you will need your Bibles this morning, so have those handy. We'll be in Matthew 27, 15 to 26. And then, as always, I've set some outlines out. Uh, feel free to take notes on those. Those are yours to keep. Uh, if you do take notes on them, if not, we'll collect them afterward. But as always, it's a, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, I want to open up our time together before we dive into Matthew by, by considering an Old Testament figure. I'm going to describe this Old Testament figure to you. And as I describe him, I want you to see if you, you know who I'm talking about. This Old Testament figure, he, he shines forth as uh, what I would argue one of the most righteous characters, one of the most faithful men in the Old Testament. This man trusted in the Lord. This man faithfully stewarded the great responsibility and power and influence that God gave him for the good of others. He was quick to flee evil and sin. Uh, He was not ashamed to speak on behalf of God as his messenger. He was abundantly merciful toward those who mistreated him. And even in his dying moments, this faithful man had confidence in God and had confidence in God's covenant. You guys getting an idea of who it might be? I'll keep going. Uh, This man, uh, just as he was one of the most faithful men in the Old Testament, he he was also one of the most unjustly treated men in the Old Testament. Maybe. Let's keep going. This man was envied and hated. He was mocked for speaking forth as God's messenger. He was forsaken by his own family, by his brothers, and given over to strangers and foreigners. All right. He was falsely accused. He was in prison. He was forgotten in prison. Go ahead. Yes, Joseph. Joseph. So I'm talking about Joseph. And before we we dive into our text this morning, I want to consider the the big picture of Joseph's life story. Okay? I want us to consider for a moment how Joseph's decisions throughout his life and the decisions of those around him culminated, ended up in the exaltation of God and the preservation of God's people. I know it's early. But, but think with me for a moment, okay? The, the evil people who wronged Joseph, who, who made evil decisions, who had evil desires, who, who, who had those desires for them? Who, who carried out those evil actions? The, the evil people, right? Who, who did the righteous things that Joseph did and who desired the righteous desires that Joseph had? Joseph, Joseph, we'll get to that here in a moment, uh, that the righteous man made righteous decisions and the evil men made evil decisions. But let's zoom out for a moment so that this can make sense in view of our passage today. As we look at the testimony of Scripture, as we look at redemptive history, is God in the business of throwing the righteous desires and actions of righteous people and the evil desires and actions of evil people into a big cosmic blender pressing the start button and seeing what comes out. And then he's stuck with this sort of mush and he's like, I wonder what I'm gonna do with it. Is that, is that what God does? Turn to Genesis fifty fifteen. Genesis fifty fifteen. 
I'll give you a moment to get there. And while you get there, we'll recap some of the things that we've seen in this story, I'm sure many times before. If you remember after Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery after he was wrongly accused by his master's wife, after he was imprisoned by the king, he was promoted to a position of national prominence and influence. According to the scriptures, Joseph used his influence and wisdom to ration the country's produce during a time of great famine to the extent that even his, his brothers, the ones who had sold him to slavery, came to him pleading for food and for supplies. If you remember, Joseph's brothers, did they initially recognize him? No, right? But, but he later discloses himself to them, and it's a happy reunion, uh, but it, it doesn't stay that way for too long because after their father dies, his brothers begin to, to get worried. Is he still going to show us the same favor he did when our father was still with us? Look down at verse 15, Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers had seen that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent instructions to Joseph saying, your father commanded us before he died saying, this is what you shall say to Joseph. Please forgive, I beg you, the offense of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Now look at verse 20. Pay close attention to verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep many people alive. So notice the parallel phrasing that describe the actions of Joseph's brothers and the actions of God. Of his brothers, Joseph says, you meant what? You meant evil against me. You meant, you thought, you planned, you schemed, you calculated, you purposed evil against me. But God meant it for what? For good, God meant, God thought, God planned, God schemed, God purposed, God calculated it for good. So, so as we look at Joseph's brothers meant and God's meant, whose meant was stronger? Whose meant prevailed? Yes. Yeah, God, God's meant was stronger. God's meant was ultimately decisive. And, and we know that from the testimony of scripture that God's divine will superintends and controls the desires and the actions of, of men for his glory. God's meant brought about, according to verse 20 in Genesis 50, this present result to keep many people alive. So, so we see that, that God is not in the business of making cosmic mush out of people's decisions and then trying to figure out what, what to do with it. He's in the business of eternally determining exactly by what means his sovereign plan will be accomplished and the purpose for which his sovereign plan will be accomplished. So, so why do I bring this up? You're probably like, I thought we were in Matthew this morning. Well, aside from the fact that this guy's name is Joseph, and today we're gonna be talking about a different guy named Joseph, I bring this up because God's sovereignty over the actions of Righteous people and the actions of wicked people is a major theme in our text today. It's a major theme in the story of the crucifixion. And really, it's, it's a theme throughout the entire Bible. The, the burial of Jesus, which we'll be talking about today, 
maybe something that you've read dozens of times, but, but maybe like driving from one big city to another big city and not really paying attention to the little towns in between, you've driven from the account of the crucifixion to the account of the resurrection before and have not really paid attention to the miraculous providence of God in the 10 verses that we're gonna look at today. Guys, I pray that as we read that this burial account would make you treasure the sovereignty of God. With this in mind, let's read our text for today. I'll give you a moment to flip to Matthew 27. Flip to Matthew 27, verse 57. When you're there, just look up so I know you're ready. Matthew 27, verse 57. Okay, let's go ahead and read. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day, of, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. So in Matthew 27, 57 to 66, and you'll see this on your outline this morning, we're going to see two scenes, two scenes that demonstrate the sovereignty of God in the miraculous burial of Jesus. Two scenes that demonstrate the sovereignty of God in the miraculous burial of Jesus. What's scene number one on your outline? Go ahead. The Savior, the Savior buried. What's scene number two in your outline? Back there, blue shirt. The grave secured. Good. Let's look at the first scene, scene number one, the Savior buried. Look, look back at verse 57. Verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. So we see right off the bat that this scene takes place when it was evening. This was sometime between 3 p.m. when Jesus was crucified and 6 p.m. when the Sabbath would officially begin. And as this text begins, it draws our attention to an important figure, an important individual named Joseph. What does the text tell us about Joseph? Shout out some details that you see. What does it tell us about Joseph? He was rich. What else? Yes. He's a disciple of Jesus. What else? Where is he from? Yes. Arimathea. Arimathea, that's right. And if we look at some cross-references like Mark 15, 43 or Luke 23, 50, we learn that he was also a prominent member of the Jewish council. If we look at Luke 23, 50, we learn that he was a good and righteous man. If we look at Luke 23, 51, we learn that he was one who had not consented to their plan of action. To what plan of action? The crucifixion. He was a member of the council, but he did not stand by uh, promoting the crucifixion of Jesus. If we look at John 19, 38, we see that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. 
a secret one out of fear for the Jews. So Joseph comes up to Pilate, and, and what, does he, what does he do? What does he do? Yes? That's right. He asked uh, for, for, the Jesus, for the body of Jesus to be given to him. And how did, how did Pilate respond to the request? What does Pilate say? Go ahead. He orders it be given to him. The Gospel of Luke supplements this account with, with the following details. Um, Luke uh, 23, 44 says that after Joseph asked for the body of Jesus, Pilate wondered if Jesus was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he, he granted the body to Joseph. So he verified that Jesus was dead, and after doing so, it seems that Pilate didn't really have a lot of trouble just handing him over. We can be confident, though, having, look at, having looked at Pilate's life and Pilate's character, that Pilate didn't give over the body of Jesus because he wanted to honor Jesus in his death. It's very likely that Pilate honored the request of the Jews for the bodies to be taken down from the cross and honored the request of, of Joseph because he wanted to avoid further conflict with the Jews. Uh, these motivations would fall in line with the pattern of Pilate's self-interest and, and fear of men, but, but nevertheless, he, he went ahead and granted Joseph's wish. So we have to ask ourselves, why did Joseph go through this trouble? Why do you think Joseph went through all this trouble? Why did he do this? Why was it important to him that the body of Jesus be taken down from the cross? Because he was a disciple, and by virtue of being a disciple, maybe he, he, he cared about Jesus, right? I think that's a good answer. Um, John 19, 31 to 42, one of our parallel texts describes the precursor to this scene in, in the following way. Verse 31 says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, with Jesus. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So, so in this text, the Jews who had just rallied for the crucifixion of the Messiah, the ones who so brazenly took ownership of his crucifixion, remember how they said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. The ones who had just mocked Christ as he hung nailed to the cross are all of a sudden concerned with maintaining the Sabbath regulations. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 does say, if a man has committed any sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So, so in keeping with this regulation, which was right and good, these hypocrites, they ask that those who are crucified have their legs broken, which would render them incapable of breathing because to breathe they would push themselves up with their legs and fill their lungs with air. So now that their legs are broken, they can't breathe, they, they die quickly, and then they would be taken down. But when they come to break Jesus' legs, what do they find? They don't need to do this, why not? Yes, he's, he's already dead. So they take a spear, they pierce his side, and what comes out? Blood and water. The unimaginable, might we say, eternal stress of bearing the sin of 
men and the wrath of God had caused at some point the Savior's heart to, to burst open. And, and this was, if we think about why this was important, it was really just an indication that Jesus had died. And so as you might imagine, when, when the bodies of the crucified dead went unclaimed, whenever nobody said, hey, that's my brother or my sister, whenever they were left on the cross, what do you think happened to those bodies? Perhaps, perhaps they certainly didn't receive a proper burial, yeah? Maybe they would just sit there and rot, I, I think so, and that's what, that's what I found as I, as I studied this week. They, they would often be stacked in mass graves and animals would come by and eat them. They, they would sometimes get thrown in giant garbage burn piles until they were reduced to ash. So again, why did Joseph request the body of Jesus? Picture for a moment the, the body of Jesus, beaten, nailed, pierced, dishonored, I don't think that many of us could stand there and watch on top of all of that, the dead body of our Lord, rot, burn, or be torn to wild, be torn to pieces by wild beasts. I think it's entirely possible that neither could Joseph, that his love and loyalty toward Jesus motivated him to make the request. Do you think that Joseph, do you think that Joseph assumed any kind of personal risk in asking for the body of Jesus? Do you think this was a risky thing to do? Yes, why? Yeah, he, he, and he was, and we know kind of what, what he, he was a secret disciple, right? He wasn't an overt disciple. There was nothing secretive, however, about going up to a governor and asking for the body of Jesus. There was nothing secretive about taking a body to another gravesite, and there was certainly nothing secretive about taking Jesus to his own personal uh, tomb, like we'll see in just a moment. So, so as a member of the council, he risked social and religious ostracism. As a disciple of Jesus, he risked his life. The one secret disciple risked his life in a very public way to honor his savior one last time. Maybe we can make a quick point of application here. I want you to notice that though the text describes Joseph as a secret disciple, it does not promote secret discipleship. As we just discussed, what should stand out as virtuous to us about Joseph? That he was a secret disciple? No, that, that he risked his life right, that he was willing to assume the consequences of being associated with Jesus. Luke 9, starting in verse 23, teaches us, Jesus himself teaches us, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Would you risk your reputation for Jesus? Would you risk your life for Jesus? Is, is honoring Jesus worth it to you like it was worth it to Joseph? Let's continue to unpack how Joseph honored the body of Jesus. Look at verse 59. Look down at verse 59. Verse 59 says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. So what did Joseph do to the body of Jesus? He, he wrapped it, he carefully wraps his wounded body in a linen cloth, uh, but he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. We, we learn in Luke 23 that the women who had come with him out of Galilee 
followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes later. In John, we learned that Nicodemus, anybody remember Nicodemus from John 3, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came with Joseph, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. So in the moments following the crucifixion, when Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, his students had scattered, who were the only funeral attendees? It was a group of mourning women and secret disciples. But for this faithful bunch, only a proper burial was fitting for their king. The text says that after the body of Jesus was properly wrapped and perfumed, Joseph, look at verse 60, laid it, laid the body in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and then he went away. So there's an awful lot of detail here about the place where Jesus was laid. Well, what does the text say about the place where Jesus was laid? It says that it was Joseph's own tomb, right? What else does it say about it? It said that he was laid in Joseph's new tomb, where Luke and John elaborate that no one had ever laid before. He, he was laid in a tomb which Joseph had hewn or carved out of rock. He was laid in a, in a tomb, the entrance of which was sealed by a very large stone. So, so why all this detail? Why, why do we need to know all of that? Well, what is so significant about the tomb in which Jesus was buried? That Joseph would be willing to give it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's part of it, that Joseph would be willing to give it. Yes? That it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. That's where we're going to go with that. So turn to Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53, verse 4. I'll give you a moment to get there. Isaiah 53, verse 4. When you're there, you're close. Look up, so I know you're there. Isaiah 53, verse 4 is probably one of the most explicit prophetic depictions of Jesus' crucifixion. And there the prophet Isaiah writes in verse four, surely our griefs he, Jesus, himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. Now pay attention to, to verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Do you remember the extensive description of Joseph? What was Joseph described as? Was he a poor man? Go ahead. He was a rich man. Do you remember the, the description of the grave? It was Joseph, the rich man's own tomb. It was Joseph, the rich man's brand new tomb in which no one had ever laid. It was a tomb that was hewn or carved out of solid rock. This was something only the wealthy could afford. 
And so although the body of Jesus was assigned with wicked men to be dishonorably discarded, yet he was with a rich man, with Joseph in his death, so that the Lord who had done no violence and in whose mouth was no deceit would receive a proper burial. Think about the way that we started our time together this morning in view of this passage. We see that what Joseph meant for the honoring of Jesus' body and what Pilate meant for the avoidance of further conflict with the Jews, God meant for the purpose of demonstrating his sovereignty over the miraculous fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and the burial of Jesus. Let's look together at the last verse in this section. Look at verse 61 with me. Verse 61 says, And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. It's a little bit of a mystery why God in his sovereignty decided to feature these, these three, I'm sorry, these two women as key witnesses during Jesus' crucifixion, during his burial, and then during his resurrection. Why, why does God feature these, these women in these key portions of, of redemptive history? The, the Gospels don't tell us explicitly, but I think we can make three observations real quick from Scripture that might help us get a good idea of why they're there, of God's purpose behind featuring them. Observation number one, these women served as faithful examples of loving and loyal ministry. Uh, On Wednesday night, I think it was, you looked at Matthew 27, verse 55, which said, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So these women were instrumental in the ministry of Christ as they ministered to him, cared for him, supplied for his needs, and even in his death, sought to honor his body by preparing spices and perfumes. Observation number two, these women served as key witnesses. Matthew 27, 55 records that they looked on from a distance when Jesus was crucified. Luke 23, 55, records that these women saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid. Matthew 28, 1, records that the next day, the women came to look at the grave, finding it empty. So they looked, Matthew 27, 55, they saw, Luke 23, 55, and they looked, Matthew 28, 1. It may be worth noting that the testimony of women uh, did not carry much weight at this time. So why would God make these ladies prime witnesses to the most important events in redemptive history? Could it be that the testimony of these women speaks to the truthfulness of the church's testimony? After all, if these events had been made up, if they had been fabricated, it would have been more believable for a man or a group of men to have witnessed these key events. We'll make a third observation. Observation number three These women's courage and loyalty stood in contrast to the fickleness and cowardice of the scattered disciples. Anybody know how many disciples were present for Jesus' crucifixion? One. How many disciples attended Jesus' burial? Zero. How many visited the grave after the Sabbath? Zero. It wasn't until the women go and tell folks what they found. So the faithfulness and love of these women toward Jesus is is unmistakable. 
So far we've looked at scene number one, the Savior buried, where we saw the sovereignty of God and the miraculous burial of Jesus. We saw his sovereignty displayed in Joseph's request for the body of Jesus, Pilate's order for his body to be released in, in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. As the body of Jesus, which was once assigned with wicked men, was instead laid in the tomb of the rich man, just as Isaiah predicted. We turn now to a second scene, scene number two, which demonstrates the sovereignty of God and the miraculous burial of Jesus. What's scene number two titled? Go ahead. Either go, yeah. The grave secured. The grave secured. So look at verse 62 with me. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Anybody know why it's so significant that this specific group of people, the chief priests and the Pharisees, came together? John MacArthur points out that the chief priests were composed largely of a group called the Sadducees, who were strong theological opponents of the Pharisees. John MacArthur writes that the Gospels record only one other instance in which these two groups were together, and in both instances, their only common motivation was hatred of Jesus. Notice also the time of the week when this meeting is held. What does the text say? It says it occurred the next day, the day after the preparation. What happened after the day of the preparation? It was a Sabbath. It was a Sabbath. We, we should ask, wait, what? Didn't John 19 tell us, starting in verse 31 that we looked at earlier, that the Jews, the day prior, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they may be taken away. So before they were concerned about the defiling effects of leaving bodies on the cross during the Sabbath, but now on the Sabbath itself, they have no problem defiling themselves by gathering together with the Roman governor. This should perplex us. We should be burdened by their inconsistency, right? They only adhere to the law whenever it is convenient to them. Before moving on, I think we could ask ourselves the same question as a point of application. Could, could this be said about you? Could it be said that you're just as inconsistent as these Jewish leaders? Could it be said about you that you pick and choose what parts of the Bible you want to follow? When you find a passage in the Bible that opposes your personal preference, which one prevails, the passage or the preference? Do your personal preferences in dictate how you handle God's word or does God's word, word dictate how you handle your personal preferences? If God's word is not the guiding principle of your life, it means that something else is. And whatever that other guiding principle is, whether it comes from your personal preferences or from somewhere else, it is your little G God. Friends, God demands nothing less than full and final submission to his authoritative word. And if anything other than God's word is the guiding principle of your life this morning, it may be that you've never turned to the Lord with a humble heart of submission. Turn to him today. Confess your sins to him. Put your hope in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, and you will be forgiven. God will change your heart and make his word the guiding principle, that the passages in his word will begin to transform your personal preferences, not the other way around. As we continue with our text, we have to ask, what is the reason why this unlikely Jewish crew gathered together with Pilate on the Sabbath? What could be so important that they would violate Sabbath regulations? Look with me at verse 63. 
Look at verse 63. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. How do the Jewish leaders refer to Jesus in this passage? What do they call him? That deceiver. So these irreverent Jewish leaders could not even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. And having read the crucifixion account, we know that hidden in their little phrase, while he was still alive, really means before we killed him. What is the concern of these Jewish leaders? What is their concern? What are they so worried about? It's it's Jesus' resurrection claim, right? They remember that Jesus had said, after three days, he was to rise again. It's funny, this claim was not well received by the disciples, oftentimes, but clearly it was a source of concern for them. But was, was their concern that Jesus would be miraculously resurrected? Was that what they were concerned about? No, no. They had just considered Jesus a, a deceiver, right? So, so what was their concern? Look at verse 64. Look at verse 64 in your Bibles. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So what was their concern? Go ahead. Yeah, exactly right, mm-hmm. that the disciples would steal the body of Jesus and that a rumor would spread that he had risen from the dead. They fear that the last deception would be worse than the first. They fear that a fake resurrection would draw the people away more than a fake redeemer. If you remember, out of envy, they had handed Jesus over to Pilate and for envy, they sought to prevent any event that would make Jesus look better than them and draw away the people So the Jewish leaders have the third day jitters and what do they ask of Pilate? What do they ask Pilate to do? What was that? To guard the tomb. That's right. They don't really ask him, right? It's more like they tell him, yeah? Uh, They they say, give orders, Pilate, for the grave to be made secure until the third day. And And then how does Pilate respond? How does Pilate respond? Let's look at verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So let's take a moment to consider the multi-level protection that surrounded the body of Jesus from that moment forward. He was laid in a tomb that was hewn out of rock. What was placed to, to cover the opening of the tomb? A heavy stone. And then the seal of Rome was placed on the stone as a warning to anyone who might even think of messing with it. And around the tomb were Roman soldiers posted up. Why is this significant? How do these comprehensive security measures contribute to the story? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is 1 Kings 18. If you remember, the prophet Elijah is ministering to an unfaithful people who could not make up their minds as to whether they should follow the one true God or follow Baal. So what does he do? He he challenges 450 prophets of Baal. He says, you offer a sacrifice to Baal and I will offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. You call on the name of your false God and I will call on the name of my God and the Lord, the God who answers, by fire, he is God. So the prophets of Baal set up their sacrifice and they cry out to their Baal from midday to evening and what happens? Do you remember? 
Nothing. Nothing. No fire. No answer from Baal. Then Elijah sets up his sacrifice. But before he calls out to the Lord, he does something interesting. Do you remember what he does? What does he do? Yeah, he pours, he pours four pitchers of water on top of the altar. And then what does he do? He does it again. And then what does he do? He does it a third time. To the point where the text says that the water flowed around the altar. Pro tip, if you ever go camping, water is not good for starting fires. So, so what's the point of this? Why does Elijah ask that so much water be poured on top of the altar that he's hoping will catch on fire? Guys in the back, go ahead. He's flexing on them, okay? Yeah, I would say he's flexing on them. I should have titled my subpoint. he's flexing on them. So, so, so you're right. That he did this so that when the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench, everyone would know the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Similarly, there would be no doubt in anyone's mind as they considered the guard the seal, the stone, and the rock, that Jesus was not raised by the conspiracy of men, but by the power of God. And so we see again that what the Jewish leaders meant for the suppression of Jesus' ministry and Pilate meant for the purpose of satisfying the Jews, God meant for the purpose of demonstrating his sovereignty over the miraculous resurrection of Christ. Friends, God is in the business of making himself look glorious, and that is what he's doing right here. So this morning, we've seen two scenes that demonstrate the sovereignty of God in the miraculous burial of Jesus. What was scene number one? Savior buried. buried. What was scene number two? The grave secured. So as we close, there are just two points of application that I want to leave you with. Two points of application I want to leave you with. The first one, meditate on the sovereignty of God. The same God who sovereignly arranged every little detail in the burial of Jesus is in control of your life. And if you are in Christ, whatever circumstances, whatever personal struggles, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And point of application number two, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe in this gospel account. What God has told us in his inspired word is true. All of the sovereignly orchestrated prophecy-fulfilling events throughout the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus occurred for the purpose of validating that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the truth, and that Jesus is the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. So believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your power and your sovereignty. Lord, we thank you that The decisions of of men, whether righteous or wicked, do not determine the course of history. God, that you determine the course of history. And because of that, uh, we um, see what we we see in the Bible today, that you orchestrated the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus so that we could have life and life eternal. God, we pray that you would help us to to place our our trust in, in your character and your sovereignty, Lord, and that these accounts 
of the resurrection as we see how the entire body of scripture corresponds with itself that we would have an increasing amount of faith in your truthfulness and your goodness. Lord, we love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.